From the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania and Sirius XM, this is the Work and Life podcast, which explores how to create harmony among the different parts of life, work, home, community, and the private self, your mind, body, and spirit. The conversation you're about to hear was originally recorded on the Work and Life radio show on Sirius XM 111, business radio powered by Wharton. Here's your host, founding director of Wharton's Work-Life Integration Project and author of the bestseller, Total Leadership, Professor Stu Friedman. My guest today is Dr. Michael Baim, who is a professor of medicine at the University of Pennsylvania. He is the founder and director of the Penn Program for Mindfulness, which adapts traditional meditation-based techniques to make them practical, easy to learn, and relevant to our modern lives. Since 1992, this program, the Penn Program for Mindfulness, has trained over 10,000 people in mindfulness-based stress management. You've heard about mindfulness. Perhaps you want to learn more about it. Maybe you've been practicing it for a long time. What Michael does in this episode is what I think is a great service, and that is simply explaining what mindfulness is, for it's often vague and misused as a, as a term, as a concept, well, so you can understand what it is, why it's so useful, how it reduces stress, and how it improves performance, learning, memory, and helps to create a greater sense of meaning in our lives. So listen and learn from a true master how mindfulness can enhance your work and the rest of your life. Michael, welcome to Work and Life. Thank you so much. It's really wonderful to have you here. So, what? Um, how do you understand mindfulness? Uh, mindfulness is oh, like lots of things that are hard to put into words. It's like falling in love. You tell somebody what that's like, and they go, uh-huh, 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 and you know that it's not the same. They're not really getting it. It's not the same. The words don't uh, communicate it. Hmm. So mindfulness, which you could describe, which I describe as a way of being fully in the present moment of your life, is more like the feeling of being in love than it is like the description, which sounds like something out of a cognitive psychology laboratory. Mm -hmm. It means connecting really meeting and feeling and inhabiting the aliveness that is you. Hmm. And boy, that sounds pretty uh, touchy-feely. Um, like something that, you know, you'd think about while you were listening to your Grateful Dead collection. And um, But actually, there's a tremendous amount of science behind it now. Mm -hmm. So mindfulness is a way of connecting the part of you that's alive with the things that matter most in your world. What is it that is the vehicle for experiencing what matters most? Like we could say, well, yeah, I want to experience what matters most, but how do you actually do that? How, how do you do that? How do you do that? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it requires paying attention to what's, you know, to the signals inside of you that are, you know, the ideas, the thoughts, the feelings that, that, uh, that, uh, um, approach your mind as you think about, well, you know, what do I stand for? What do, what do I want my life to be remembered as? Um, 
you know, these are some ways of addressing the question of, you know, what, what matters. Uh, another way to address it would be to think about who matters and why they matter and who you look to as uh, sources of light, uh, of, of understanding, of, of uh, admiration, and to infer from your thinking about those people what they represent with their lives and why, you know, those attributes matter to you. So I'm, I'm just, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm approaching an answer to, to a question that is obviously a very complex one, but please continue. Right. How, how many hours do we have? <laughs> yes, no, that's, right. Um, so what you're talking about is uh, the cognitive or conceptual framing of meaning, like this is the person and this is the reason and this is the mission. But the the actual currency of meaning is in fact attention itself. Mm-hmm. And it's a little bit hard to explain why that is, but think about how you experience another person. Let's say that you're um you're listening to somebody and at first you're you're not even looking at them, but you're listening to their story, the words that they say. And and then you actually start to look at them and you begin to notice more. And then for whatever reason, you really lean in and you look at them with your full attention. And you're not just noticing what they look like, but you're noticing what they feel like. Um, and so there's a continuum of meaning in that progression that is mediated through attention. I could say the same thing about the sky. You walk under this sky every time you go outside, and you usually don't notice. Mm-hmm. And then sometimes you look at the sky to get information. Well, it's going to rain. I need my umbrella. Well, it's getting dark. I better hurry. And then sometimes you just look at the sky and go, wow, it's a gorgeous day. Wow. And that's meaning. So people, places, things, they're all charged with meaning, and we are too busy to notice. Hmm. So what mindfulness does is that it trains and literally strengthens attention. And since attention is really the currency of meaning, the vehicle through which it's transmitted, or maybe we could say the stream in which it flows— then when your attention is stronger, you look more closely, you see more clearly, you make more complete contact. People become three-dimensional. The world becomes more beautiful, not because it's any different, but just because you notice. So the the training is really all about becoming more adept at attending to the world. Yeah, and and here's the here's the rob, here's the obstacle. The training is boring uh, because to strengthen attention. Stay with us, folks. You're thinking this is going to be boring because training is boring, but really boring might. Well, why do you use that term? Well, you're strengthening attention. How do you do that? Attention is like any other capacity. You use it until it's exhausted. Mm -hmm. Now, you pay attention when you're watching like a dramatic movie and it's the car chase at the end or Mm -hmm. the gunfight. Mm -hmm. Your attention is magnetized. It's not work. Mm -hmm. Attentional work 
means focusing attention when it's not so easy. Right. It's like working out your your body. It's exactly it's like, here, like it's working another out. Another part of your and and nobody likes to do that, or at least you know it's hard. It's effort. It feels painful. You want to rest regularly because you're stretching and pounding and hurting yourself in some ways as you strengthen yourself. Same thing with mindfulness training. Same thing. And after mm-hmm. you work out for the first time, you don't feel stronger at all. No. You crawl up the stairs you, at home. You feel hurt. Um, so we exercise by working the body against resistance, mm-hmm. maybe the weight against the pull of gravity. Mm-hmm. And we exercise attention by bringing it to bear on something and working against the distractions and wandering that are inevitable. Mm-hmm. So it, it, in a way, it has to be the focus of your attention might be something like the breath or mm-hmm. the sensation in your body, something that has no intrinsic interest really. But as we stay there, the part of your brain that actually uh, is, the, is the basis of attention is used. And as it becomes used more, its structure changes. Its structure changes? The physical structure? The physical hardware of your brain. I'm not talking about learning new ideas. You're changing the equipment that you use. Like the neural pathways or like you're actually shifting them through this this training? Absolutely. And Mm -hmm. that's why mindfulness has gone from being uh, something that eccentrics, you know, Mm -hmm. who did seances, and, and had weird beliefs practiced mm-hmm. to being uh, an, a really fundamental part of corporate America now. Uh, big corporations are almost all training their employees in mm-hmm. mindfulness, not, not because it makes them more peaceful or uh, kinder, although maybe that helps, but because it helps them to perform better. Mm-hmm. And so performance comes hand in hand with this ability to see more clearly what's really there. Can you say a bit more about how one does this training to attend better and enhance performance? And then I want to ask you more about how you, so, so about some of the evidence that we have now about uh, the performance impact. Mm-hmm. So uh, mindfulness <laughs> training is, is the simplest thing possible, and it sounds like the easiest thing in the world to do. You the, the most straightforward version of it is you sit down, maybe you close your eyes to be less distracted, although mm-hmm. maybe not, and you focus your attention on something that's available in your present moment, like the breath, for instance. Mm-hmm. So all that you do is bring your attention to meet the breath and and then even meet the breath more fully so that you feel and inhabit each moment of the entire cycle of breath so that you're fully present. Hmm. Your attention is going to wander off pretty quickly. You'll right. end up daydreaming or you know, remembering what you didn't do earlier in the day or what needs to happen next. And mm-hmm. every time that you notice that happen, the instructions are just to come back simply. Don't give yourself a hard time. Hmm. Don't struggle or beat yourself up. Just notice and come back. Notice the the movement from your breath mm-hmm. to whatever other thought is grabbing your attention and come back. Notice that you've wandered and come back. Mm-hmm. And as you do that, you know, in a 20-minute period of mindfulness practice, you might wander and come back a hundred times. Wow. So this is a, this is a, a hard muscle to train. Yeah. 
And, but as that muscle strengthens, what begins to happen as you go about your day mm -hmm. is that you start to notice that just like when you practice mindfulness all day long, your attention is wandering off. You're thinking and planning and scheming and remembering and dreading and longing for. There's all this stuff that's happening. And we spend so little time here in the moment that's actually happening. But as you've trained your mind to come back, you begin to notice that wandering in a different way. Hmm. And you begin to come back spontaneously. You've trained your mind to do that. So as soon as you notice that your mind has wandered, you're back. And then as you continue to practice this, eventually you wander less in the first place. So you don't have to try to do anything. You don't have to stop and take a breath. You just find that you're more fully engaged with the life that you already have. And that's where you find mm. meaning. It's not somewhere else. It is here. It is here. It, it has is to be now. here. Right. So when you say find meaning with the life you have, can you say a little bit more about what that means and, and, and uh, why it's so difficult for most of us to to do that boy the why question i'm not sure that i can answer i mean okay. I, can, I can give you an example so i'm working with a group of people at the university of pennsylvania um, health system mm -hmm. to help doctors to experience less of what we call burnout which is uh, a description of a kind of emotional exhaustion that mm -hmm. happens when you're really past your limit mm -hmm. And um, there are a lot of reasons why um, it's difficult in healthcare to stay present. You know, the electronic medical record and the increasing demands on doctors, it's not the easiest time in the history of the world to be a doctor. There's so many demands and what seems like so many unnecessary bureaucratic tasks that need to be done. And you tend to forget that the reason why you're there isn't just to write prescriptions or to mm -hmm. order tests or interpret them, but you're actually there because you were called to do it in a way. I mean, mm -hmm. most doctors are not there because they wanted to make a lot of money or, mm -hmm. believe it or not, or, um, you know, have a cushy life. They're there yeah. because they care. They have a calling to serve and to create health and other people. and It's a service profession. Right. But they, they lose sight of that. They lose that mm -hmm. so that they're with a patient, but their attention is completely drawn to the tasks that they have to perform during that visit. Mm -hmm. So, you know, strategies to reduce burnout focus on, you know, how much time do you give them and how do they work the electronic medical record? How do you diminish the paperwork and so on, like concrete fixes. But actually the fix that makes the most difference is to get them to pay attention to the patient mm -hmm. because that's why they're there anyway. Mm -hmm. And that's why the patient is there too. So suddenly, everybody gets what they want. Mm -hmm. The doctors find that, in fact, they are making contact. And because it's just a function of their attention, mm -hmm. they don't have to do anything different. They just have to notice where they already are. The patients feel differently because they're sitting in the presence of somebody who really meets them where they are, mm -hmm. who's experiencing them. Um, it's, it's a very happy moment. I imagine this is true for 
teachers and others in human service uh, professions. Well, you know, uh, but, but uh, in many other settings as well as you as you alluded to earlier that the you know mindfulness is is kind of a it really has caught fire in in the corporate world. Um, do you find that it is easier, more difficult to to help people learn the skills of of, uh, of of attending to the here and now in ways that improve their capacity, their performance uh, in other settings, you know, beyond those that involve human service? No. Um, hmm. I mean, in, in our program at Penn, we, we run this eight-week program three times a year. Um, the single most well-represented uh, profession are lawyers. Hmm. Mm-hmm. And um, psychotherapists second, but that, they're there because they want to learn some professional skills. Right. But um, why is it that lawyers are so drawn to uh, to I th- this? I think they have very stressful jobs. That's mm-hmm. my interpretation. I don't really know. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're well, not. They're, they're arguing a lot. Yeah, it's combative. <laughs> it's it's a very adversarial role for many people in the in the legal profession. But please continue about how you help them. Well, um, you know, it, it's not any different than uh, your marriage that. Whether you're practicing law or in a relationship or doing uh, or helping someone, I mean, there's a reason why you're doing it. And if you can find what matters to you by looking at it more closely and by being more fully present when you do it, you'll be more satisfied with what that is. Hmm. And, you know, maybe what you'll discover when you really look closely is that you don't want to do what it is that you're doing now. Maybe you don't want to be a lawyer or a doctor. Maybe it was a mistake. And then you might have the the strength of that conviction. You might mm-hmm. really uh, have the um, will to make a change that would otherwise be difficult mm-hmm. when you see that clearly. My my brother in law did that. He was a very successful lawyer um, uh, who dropped it and uh, actually became a physician. Um, <laughs> so yeah, uh, so does that happen a lot in your programs where lo- lawyers come to see that uh, ah this this really isn't providing the kind of meaning that I thought it might, or perhaps I I would, I would imagine people discover meaning in what they do that they hadn't otherwise seen or paid enough attention to until they were trained in how to attend to what is right there. Right. Um, I mean, more often the latter. You know, when when you finally let go of all the stuff that we fight with all day long, all the stuff that somehow seems so important but in retrospect didn't matter at all, hmm. and start noticing what's really happening in our lives, start finding a, a deeper sense of uh, connection to our own heart, to our own mission, to our own um, aliveness, uh, it's hard to predict what will happen. Hmm. But it's true. It's the same for everybody. Um, you know, you do you do a profession for um, 20 years, and you're a really different person at the end of that time. Uh, you might decide to recommit. You might decide to change. You mm-hmm. might decide to just take a different angle of it, or just to excel at it, to do it as well as you possibly can, because it does matter. So let's say uh, someone's listening right now, and they're, they're driving their truck across the Great Plains 
of these United States and they're thinking, you know, I'm having trouble paying attention to what I'm doing right now or I feel stressed by all the economic pressures, you know, the money worries I've got uh, and I've got a kid who's sick. And um, is, is there a way in which mindfulness training could help her or him? Well, that's really what mindfulness training is known for and that's why it's become so popular because it does help that. I mean, while you're driving that truck, there isn't much that you can do about the things that you're worrying about. I mean, they prey on you and your attention keeps going back there. It's like those things have a really strong magnetic pull and they draw us away from our actual experience. They pull us somewhere else, even when it doesn't help us at all. So it's like all of the things that really mm. bother us. We stuff them in one of those wheeled, you know, airline carry-on bags and then when we have nothing to do, we unzip it and we start pulling them out to nobody's benefit. Hmm. Um, so mindfulness undoes that tendency to to dredge up the things that haven't gone well, the things that you don't feel good about, and also to um, re refocus you when you begin to lean into the future with worries or you know apprehensions that that you can't do anything about right now. So so by refocusing, you, you mean to attend to, to what instead? To, you, to what's happening right now. Hmm. You're driving across the Great Plains. It's probably late in the day there. The sun isn't down yet, but uh, the shadows are long. Um, it's probably beautiful. Um, there you are. What an amazing thing. You know, I mean, nothing's happening, but but yet we are, you know, our lives are this incredible miracle that just happened. Who knew? Hi, this is Stu Friedman. I hope you're enjoying this conversation. And I'm just so glad you're listening. If you like the Work and Life podcast, I would personally appreciate your taking just a minute to rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you access this podcast, whatever your favorite platform is. We are relatively new as a podcast, uh, and our team is working really hard to bring you for free the best of the conversations that took place on my SiriusXM radio show but were previously available only to paid subscribers. So every positive rating and review helps us to grow our capacity to move faster toward the goal of sharing useful information and insights about how to create harmony among the different parts of life with people who wouldn't otherwise have access. So please do help us. And if you have ideas for what we can do to improve our impact please write to me at friedman at wharton.upenn.edu. I'd love to hear from you. Thanks, and now, back to the show. You've talked about, uh, you've written about uh, healing environments. Uh, I know that there are a lot of companies out there who are trying to create environments in which people feel like they can attend to um, uh, you know what matters, and to and to cut out the distractions. So, what's a healing environment, um, and and is it possible to create something like that in a in a business in a business setting? 
Well, there's there is a fair amount of research to show that um, some environments are more likely to to uh, be associated with increased stress and reactivity. Um, you know, there is so much research to show that our interpersonal, our social environment is the single biggest factor, mm-hmm. not just in whether we're lonely or not, but literally whether we live or die. And I don't think that I can say this too strongly. There's biology here. Mm-hmm. It's true for um, humans. It's also true for monkeys and rabbits and pigs that when we're socially isolated and not connected mm-hmm. with with people around us, uh, we don't do well. Our bodies don't do well. Mm-hmm. Medicine doesn't pay a lot of attention to that. First of all, it's hard to write a prescription for friends. <laughs> okay, take two friends twice a day. <laughs> um, and, and also... Even though we keep finding that this is true over and over again, we really don't believe it. In medicine, you mean? There's yeah. a lot of skepticism about the value of, of, of uh, social environments creating health. Yeah. Really? Well, I'm shocked to hear that. Yeah. Because I, I remember that, as a graduate student 30, 40 years ago learning about the power of social environments in, in producing health. And, and, mm-hmm. that, and that, that idea is not a new one. It is so old. And we keep, you know, spending, you know, another million dollars to look at it again, another mm-hmm. NIH research grant. I mean, for instance, uh, if you ask people who, uh, how many people they have who they can depend on, mm-hmm. And then uh, that, and then a group of people have a heart attack. The people who said that they had no one are three times as mm-hmm. likely to die as the group of people who said they had two or more people that they could depend mm-hmm. on. You know, we we've talked on a, a number of uh, the shows here about distraction and how people uh, are increasingly strained by distractions from digital devices and you know the, how the digital age has really made you know the 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 challenge of attending to what's important even more difficult do you um how do you address that issue uh, or or is it just like a natural byproduct of 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 mindfulness training that people become better able to set boundaries and to turn off their social media um well, uh, what do you have to say to those who are digitally addicted, and 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 how does that come up in your training and your practice? Oh, it, it comes up all the time. I mean, it comes up in my own life. It comes up with my kids and my family. Mm-hmm. So, uh, I think that what happens through mindfulness is not that there's some magic impulse to put the cell phone down, but that you begin to notice more closely what feels good. And that it actually doesn't feel so great to be constantly feeling the impulse to pull hmm. your device out of your pocket and look at it. It starts to feel like a compulsion. Mm-hmm. And um, when you notice that that feeling isn't so good, sometimes people decide to do something about it, hmm. set boundaries around it. And so that happens not because there's a rule, not because I say that, you know, don't do this anymore. It's not helpful. But people find out for themselves what really works for them. Hmm. So the uh, the endorphin shot, you know, that 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 fires uh, every time you get a, a notice or a uh, you know, ping or some sort of attention on social media that that wears thin or it's not really 
experienced or felt to be something that is good? It starts to become irritating okay. because it becomes a, a, a compulsion. Mm-hmm. You know, like you notice that you're spending more and more of your time looking at a tiny screen in your hand. So how have you dealt with that? Um, <laughs> intermittently successfully. Yeah, it's hard. I mean, yeah, I, I'm no different than anyone else. I do find it really uncomfortable to have the impulse to pull out my cell mm-hmm. phone mm-hmm. when I notice that it's vibrated when I'm talking to somebody or mm-hmm. doing something that requires my attention. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like any other addicting drug. Mm-hmm. You really feel better if you can limit your exposure to it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not practical to completely do away with it. No, in the modern world. Right. Because so much social exchange happens through that media. Right. But to contain it, to limit it. To contain it and, and to sort of notice that impulse and to realize that it feels better to not always give in to it. That's really the important idea that you're emphasizing here, that how it feels. Right. That um, uh, it's not um, helpful to be fixated on that all the time. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, uh, a, a TV show, like people mm-hmm. might watch a lot of TV and you start feeling a little bit flattened out by all of that. If it's too much. If it's too much. The occasional Better Call Saul, that's fine. That's fine. <laughs> <laughs> um, if people wanted to find out more about your work, uh, where would they, how would they do that? Michael? Well, we, our program at the University of Pennsylvania has a, a website. Um, and boy, it's hard to like walk down a city block without seeing something about mindfulness. I'm waiting for the convenience stores in Philadelphia to start offering it. Maybe you what, know. the Wawa stop, like mm-hmm. next to the coffee, there'll be a mindfulness station. Mm-hmm. I like it. Mm-hmm. Michael, I think we've just hatched mm-hmm. a great That's business a idea business here. business idea. Yes, sirree. Um, <laughs> but seriously, in the last 30 seconds here. Um. Uh, so, so don't try too hard. Mm-hmm. Don't give yourself a hard time when your mind wanders, but just keep coming back to whatever you're focusing on, your breath, the present moment, and then practice that as you go through your day. If you do that uh, for a couple of months, I'm willing to promise that you'll notice a difference. And anyone can do this. It, there's no special equipment that you need. Yeah, anyone can do it. Anyone can do it. And it's been around for centuries, and now we have you know scientific evidence that shows that we, this really does help to Im- improve uh, your performance and reduce stress, which so many of us are experiencing so intensely. Michael, thank you so much for sitting down with me and talking to our, our listeners uh, about your wisdom and experience and uh, ideas about bringing mindfulness to our world. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Michael Boehm. And if you've not yet tried mindfulness, I hope that you might now be inspired to consider bringing mindfulness training into your routines, maybe your daily routine as a way of reducing stress, enhancing performance, and helping you to become more aware of what it is that gives your life meaning. So here's my my invitation, my challenge to you this week. Why not try meditating for 10 minutes a day? Maybe try that for just a few days or a week. There's lots of tools out there that you can use to help you get started. 
You can go to the PEN program for mindfulness website. Uh, There are a number of free apps out there from Headspace, from Dan Harris. Just search and and you will find. John Kabat-Zinn, who was one of Michael Bame's teachers, said that mindfulness means paying attention in a particular way, on purpose, in the present moment, non-judgmentally. You can train your mind to get better at this. And it's, it's so crucial for our lives to be mindful, attentive to what it is that we bring our minds to. It matters a lot to our mental health and other important life outcomes, what happens to us at work, in our, in our most important relationships. So perhaps you will try. And if you do, I would love to hear from you about what it is that you discover. If you've tried any of the things that you've heard about on this podcast, email me your story, questions, uh, whatever has occurred to you as a result of your experiments in learning. The address is friedman at wharton.upenn.edu. I would really enjoy hearing your thoughts, comments, questions, and if it's okay with you, I'll share them with listeners. Thanks for listening to this episode of Work and Life. This conversation was originally recorded on my weekly radio show on Sirius XM 111, Business Radio Powered by Wharton. Tune in for live broadcasts of Work and Life on Tuesdays at 7 p.m. Eastern. For more about today's guest and about previous guests, check out our blog at workandlifepodcast.com. Join the conversation by tweeting at Stu Friedman. And for more ideas and tools for creating harmony among the different parts of life, check out our website, totalleadership.org, and my book, Total Leadership, Be a Better Leader, Have a Richer Life. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and share it with your friends, family, and coworkers. Until next time, I'm your host, Stu Friedman, and I thank you for joining me.